Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 49 and Khoi and Urlam Afrikaner uprising of 1799 is in view. Keep in mind at this point in South African history, Afrikaners are the mixed race band of former Khoi, slaves and Namakwa, living in the northern Huntam and at times raiding Namakwa land. When we left off last episode, things were sliding towards war as the settlers of the Huntam and the Khoi were thrown into chaos. In this episode, we'll also pick up the story further east in the Zurfeld, where Kunrad the base had taken to living amongst the Khoi and Bastos, and eventually the Amakosa. His fortunes had been mixed, but changed after 1795, when Kosa chief Nkmeka, who'd recently defeated his uncle in Tlambe, decided he must acquire a white advisor to help him obtain guns and horses. That Kosa knew that these were now crucial in any battle against their own people and the settlers drifting in from the south. They were symbols of authority. He chose the multilingual Kunrad the base for the role, and then to cement the alliance, Ingrika gave his own mother to the Boer. Reports said she was not unhappy with the arrangement. At the same time, Martinus Prinzler of the Zurfeld remained the unreconciled leader of the 1795 settler rebellion at Graf Reinet, and he believed the British garrison in the Cape was now weakened. He began to mobilize trek boers for another raid on the Amatosa to seize cattle he believed had never been returned after the War of 1793. But to do so, he had to create a situation where the burghers would be willing to turn out for military duty on commando, so to speak. We'll return to his next moves later in the podcast, because the Khoi were also now about to rise up further north along the Orange River. 1799 was a momentous year in southern African history, as you're going to hear because not only did the Khoi rise up and the Boers, further north the proto-Zulu groups of the Mtetwa and Dwanwe were also growing their power quickly. Back to the Northern Cape then. Remember last episode, Landros Andris Krai in the Huntam had been recalled by British Governor-General Dundas, who had also called for his arrest for corruption. In January 1799, Veldkornet van der Westhuizen of the Little Namakoland was in a state of considerable agitation. The Fel Cornet called for assistance in quelling a Khoi uprising that had been partly fermented by the Trek Boers themselves as they raided local clans without reason. Eventually, the lawlessness of this frontier was going to backfire, and that's what happened at this point. It always takes two to tango. Van der Westhuizen had asked for support, but the non-appearance of reinforcements and Feldwachters from other districts was not reassuring. A small rebel Urlam group of around 50 men with 15 guns appeared one day to parley with them and another Feldkornet by the name of Jan Engelbrecht. But these rebels flatly refused to talk to Trekboers, who were now distrusted. Van der Westhuizen managed to convince three Urlams, Pitteboy Kamis, his brother Kubita Kamis and Klaas Knucha, to meet him in eight days at the Kombach to return guns and livestock recently stolen from the Trekboers. The Khoi, in exchange, would be allowed to keep three guns for self-defense against the San, but Barand Hujaman, who had apparently killed Hendrik Hivas the Knecht, refused to discuss further terms. Other Urlams alongside also refused to negotiate. Still, after the obligatory eight days, the Kamises Klaas Knucha, Lynx Nambib, Gerrit Kwankwa, and a handful of other Urlam leaders arrived at the Kombach. It's a mountain range that stretches east to west along the border of what is now the Northern and Western Cape. It lies north of the Murtanaz Karoo and is part of the escarpment between the Rochefeld and Nuvefeld mountain ranges. The Komsbach Pass is just over 1,700 meters high and is quite a sight if you ever travel through the region. 
So the Urlams who decided to make the trip handed over only five firearms, six horses and a paltry 14 cattle, and about the same number of sheep. They then told Van der Westhuizen that the rest of the livestock had got lost. Not being a member of the Do You Think I Was Born Yesterday tribe, Van der Westhuizen was obviously upset because he'd already heard rumours to the contrary. Luckily for both sets of negotiators, Cornelius Koch then arrived at that very moment and convinced the Urlams to listen to Van der Westhuizen, who Koch said had negotiated honestly up to that point. It was only now that the root cause of the uprising was formally noted and written down. The coy statement was enclosed by Van der Westhuizen in his next letter back to the governor back in Cape Town. First, the coy were against their names being recorded. Secondly, they had been told that the English arrival at the Cape meant they'd be drafted in to build roads to link the farms. One of the Urams, Gerrit Kwankwa, also related how Andries Krai had threatened him, saying all Koi were going to be forcibly removed to over the mountain towards the Orange River, in other words. Then there was the rumour amongst the Koi that refusing to allow their names to be listed by the new authority would lead to their execution. A few other allegations were jotted down specifically about the Trekboers threatening to turn all Koi into their slaves. Possibly the most damaging point in the letter was the comment by Bastard leader Adam Cook, who explained how Weltwachtmeister Krei had told him to leave the Orange River region or he'd be hunted down and killed. For a law-abiding man like Cook, this was the last straw. So there it was. Both the white farmers and the Khoikhoi inhabitants of the little Namakwalan were feeling insecure, to put it mildly. Luckily for Van der Westhuizen, Cork dismissed Krai's threats out of hand and continued negotiating. Then both parties separated with Van der Westhuizen promising to consider the Urlam demands. But a fortnight later in February, the commando promised by the Cape authorities eventually arrived. It consisted of Feldwachtmeesters Gideon van Seil, Gerrit Smit and Ernst Wolfart. They had managed to gather 18 trekboers to the commando and two bastards as well as seven koikoi and it was now 68 men strong. That was a powerful group. Most were armed and there were also about a dozen more cattle drivers to add to the overall effect on the felt. They set forth to enforce law and order on the little Namakwaland. On 24th of February 1799 contact was made with a group of San who had joined the rebellious Namakwaland Ulam rebels. Two were shot dead and the rest were followed to a cliff at the Buffels River. There, a much larger gang had been holed up for some time. One of the Trekboers, by the name of Gerrit Uvis, the elder, approached Van der Westhuizen, suggesting he could possibly negotiate with this large group to end the standoff peacefully. He may have been courageous, but his Christian virtues had blinded him to the fact that his opponents were in no mood to talk. Two other Feldbachmeisters who represent Van Seyl and Smit stood back and said nothing as Van der Westhuizen decided what to do. Because of the sand amongst the gang, the Trekboers were afraid to approach. Had there only been Namakwa or Koi, it would have led to a very different ending. Urbis, for some reason, believed he could negotiate with the sand. The very people, his people, had been ethnically cleansing with great success all the way across the Cape. They had not forgotten nor forgiven the Dutch for the murder of their families over a century. Urvis, though, knew that amongst the group was a young girl called Feiki, who he thought was more reasonable, and asked to speak to the Namakwa youngster. Finally, in the afternoon, Van der Westhuizen relented and allowed Urvis to approach the cliff, and Feiki came out to talk. Four others went with him, but had stayed back with the horses. 
As Urbis put the proposals of peace to Fakie, Sand suddenly appeared from behind him in the rocks. One ran up and stabbed Urbis in the back with an assegai, a spear, the point entering above the hip and coming out near his navel. The four men and Urbis managed to make their way to the horses and ride back to the commander. There, Urbis was treated and lingered painfully all day on the 26th of February, but died on the 27th. As he passed, he is reported to have told Van der Vestesen that he forgave his murderer because he was a Christian, pitied his poor wife and children, and had sought peace. What must be, must be, he said. My time has come. Uvi's death meant the peace moves were halted, at least initially. Those involved, though, could not be hunted down because they'd moved further north of the Orange after the incident. A handful of Koi Koi rebels did surrender now, but the uprising continued. Eventually, most sued for peace. The main rebels, who were identified as a mixture of Koi, San and Bastard, disappeared into the area beyond the Orange. And so the rebellion in the Macquiland appeared to be over and the situation for the Trekboers immediately improved. Young Englishman John Barrow toured the area a little later in 1799 and said the inhabitants were now secure and also noted that the Namakwa were in a state of almost complete servitude. It would take another decade or so, he said, and they'd all be serfs on farms. He noted something else which South Africa battles with to this day. The Namakwa nation, said Barrow, writing in his diary of 1799, were now destructively addicted to brandy and could no longer hunt game like their ancestors. They were willing to exchange a single sheep for a bottle of alcohol. And yet complete peace had not been achieved. There were a few more outbreaks of violence through 1799. For example, in August, Landrost van der Riet of Stellenbosch was informed of another uprising of the Namakwa, which was put down by van der Westhuizen and a party of armed burghers. Earlier in June, groups of San had attacked the Namakwa, who then took refuge with a farmer by the name of Adrian van Niekerk. But these incidents faded by year end. By 1800, some Trekboers had been left destitute, including Jasper Kluti, who ended up married and living with what the Tulbach Landrost called a bastard Hodentot. Kluti had many children with her and lived in a mat hut amongst the Urlams, then asked for permission to farm further west down Kosis River. He thus became the founder of the present-day community of the Komachaste. Later, in the 20th century, an alternative narrative developed about their formative years. As I've pointed out, by then many white South Africans had taken to denying the African past, as apartheid tightened its social noose around the throats of citizens. Tradition then had it that Jasper Kluter the Younger, Jasper's one son, had three white half-brothers who despised him on account of his mixed descent and banished him from the Kamisbach. Much later in South African history, these people would have to fight tooth and nail to keep their land as white farmers encroached through the coming centuries. While the situation in Namakwaland settled down as the century turned in the middle orange, the Afrikaner gang, who we've heard about last episode, was going full tilt. By May 1799, they'd begun a series of raids on farms in the Huntam and were stealing powder, shot, livestock and provisions. Their first victims were Jakobus Engelbrecht and his knecht Bastard Jan Diltjes. They were murdered and their muskets and two wagons seized along with 1,200 sheep and 300 cattle. That was a fortune back in 1799. Next, the Afrikaners killed a Khoikhoi servant of Ghat Tutoy and stole several wagons, then hit the farm of the widow of Peter Teron, stealing 2,500 sheep and goats, 
146 cattle and three horses. Next came the family of Johannes Boerter, who were attacked and robbed while traveling with all their stock and possessions. They lost everything except the clothes in which they stood and were lucky to survive with their lives. By now the Afrikaner gang was 100 strong and included many San who were thirsty for revenge. A commander sent to deal with the Afrikaners then ran out of steam and the gang returned to the Orange River rich in treasure. Meanwhile the word went out on the Cape, more powder and shot needed in the hunter. British Governor Dundas was running out of options. Landros van der Riet had described Klaas Afrikaner as the widely known scoundrel and murderer who has long deserved death for the various crimes he has committed. Plans were laid for a large commando to head into the Orange to find this gang, and Dundas was considering placing a large price of dead or alive on Afrikaner's head. But he was also in two minds. The Dutch farmers had played him for a fool once before, and he wasn't about to be caught out again supporting a commando that was actually just a trek for a raiding party. This time, obviously, it wasn't, but you can understand his hesitation. Still, Van der Riet prevailed and pulled together a huge commando of 137 men who went after the Afrikaners in August and September 1799. But they ran out of water and raided a few sand kraals instead, then went home. The danger from the Afrikaner gang was growing, and the longer they remained on the loose, the more damage they were doing to the English administration. But Governor Dundas had other things on his mind right now. You see, the Trekboers of Graf Reinet in the Zurfeld were back to their wily ways. Martinus Prinsloo was a loose cannon, and he was fixing for a fight with the English. By now, the British had asserted their authority in the Zurfeld and arrested the troublesome Adrian van Jasveld for fraud. In January 1799, Prinsloo and a party of 30 armed men intercepted the escort taking Van Jasveld to Cape Town to stand trial and released him. Off into the felt they galloped with Van Jasveld, deciding he'd throw in his lot with Prinsloo and the Trekboer gangsters, or rebels. Their nomenclature, of course, depends on who you support. One person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter, after all. The Trekboer rebels were now in contact with the giant who was now married to Ngrika's mother, Kunrat the base. Prince Lu tried to convince the base to convince Ngrika to attack the British. This, of course, is another of many examples you're going to hear of the Boers or the British using black tribes against each other while publicly pretending they weren't. They were willing to put aside their growing racial prejudice and ally themselves with Africans. While the base thought about these things, Prinsloo and Van Jasveld played a double cross. They headed off to burghers living in the Zurfeld and told these Trekboers that the base would use his influence on Nrinka to turn the Amatkosa loose on the farms unless they joined in the rebellion. Talk about double crossing, triple crossing and just plain deviousness. These Trekboers made Dingaan look like a rank beginner when it came to lies, distortion and disinformation. So what was their plan then? What did the rebels want? Aside from setting the whole district into an uproar, they didn't have a plan. What were the next steps? Ek Vietni, they said. They wanted to besiege the Drosti and Graf Reinet, that symbol of English control, and threatened to hang Landros Bresler. But what exactly their political aim was, they didn't have a cooking clue. Back in Cape Town, Dundas was chewing his quill in nervous thought. The reason 
was not just that the Afrikaner gang was wreaking havoc in the Hunterman beyond, nor the shirty Trekboers and the Republican berets declaring rebellion in Graf Renet. No, he now had to deal with something far more serious, at least in his book. The French. Yes, the traditional enemy was back. While Dundas immediately suspended the supply of all ammunition to the eastern frontier and cut the road between Graf Reynet and Cape Town, he received word that a French frigate was lurking off the coast. The French, based at that incredibly beautiful Indian Ocean Ile de France, aka Mauritius, had sent a frigate called Prudente to try and land troops and ammunition at Algoa Bay, destined for the Graf Reynet rebels. The English captured the frigate and Dundas sighed with some relief. Now all he had to worry about was 200 perennially disruptive farmers in Graf Renet and not the French army and navy. So Dundas duly dispatched Brigadier General Thomas Pakenham van der Leeuw to Algoa Bay by ship instead of overland. The force included the much-feared British dragoons or light cavalry. These were usually deployed for screening, reconnaissance and pursuit and not for full frontal attack, particularly against trekboers who were armed with muskets and were crack shots. The dragoons were feared, however. Well-trained, dressed in heavily braided tight blue jackets, blue breeches and elegant tartan helmets, they were a sight when they hove into view. The helmets were made of metal and leather with a bearskin crest. They carried curved sabres and a short musket or carbine with a barrel 66 centimetres long. That was suspended from a belt over the left shoulder and hung muzzle down at the rider's right thigh. All well and good, thought the Boers. European troops fighting white trekboers. But what is this? Van der Leer also commanded a detachment of 50 men of the Hottentot Corps, which the British assumed would intimidate the rebels. All the trekboers saw was a racial affront at that stage. The bigoted order of the Graf Renet frontier was now in full force. It was the presence on the frontier of Khoi and mixed-race soldiers in British uniforms that was going to have an additional and entirely unanticipated but inflammatory consequence. The British had always used races against other races. It was part of the fun of running an empire across the world. Indians fought Arabs, Europeans and Arabs fought Indians. Latinos fought the French, West Indians, Europeans and Indians fought the Dutch. Arabs, Indians and Europeans fought the Dutch and the French. And now mixed-race Cape soldiers were fighting the Dutch once more. So what? thought the British. Ach, near skander, said the burghers. And thus, as they say, the die was cast, which would grow into more than a century of fighting, where Boers would complain to the British about their use of black troops. It just wasn't cricket, you know. The burghers had begun to differentiate themselves as a race on the felt. They were threatened by this majority. Their very existence as a people could be overrun at any moment by these Amakosa, these Khoi, these, these non-whites. And they still hadn't met the biggest threat, the Zulu. Interesting times lay ahead, no doubt about it. Well, look at the time. We have to finish off for this episode. Next, we'll hear about what happens to the rebels of Graf Reynet, and we'll take a swing around further northeast to probe what was going on in what would become known as Zululand. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. You can email me through the website desmondlatham.com or direct message me on Twitter at deslatham. Until next, salani ahli.